The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Understanding with you and the truth that Christ is the only way. God, we, we're here today because of that. And when all, when all is stripped away, you're all we have and you're enough. Hallelujah. That truth alone is worth all the praise that we could muster up within ourselves this day. And because we've come before you, sung praise, sung gospel truth, we realize who we are. And so we confess our sinfulness today. We confess that sin in our lives that is a barrier between us and you. We confess our individual sins, those things we struggle with, those things that bind us up, those things that that keep us from walking with you as we should, as we desire. We confess our corporate sins as a church body. Ask your forgiveness. And Lord, even as we think of the sin in our lives, this very moment we confess them to you. As a church and as a denomination, we are entering into a time of missions focus. What you're doing around the world, in and through the missionaries we support, in and through our own lives. So we lift up those missionaries. We lift up their hard work. The churches around the world, Lord, that are gathering, led by missionaries, led by home folk, we just pray that you would bless the work in the church around the world, particularly, Lord, that you would be with the persecuted church. Guard your people. Put protection around them. Bless their lives this day. We pray for the nations. Somehow we might have an impact in the nations around the world. We, we confess our failure in our own nation, Lord. And we pray that you might do a work in your church right here that revival might come. You would restore a godly presence in our own nation by your great power. We enter also into a holiday season, Father, and we 
Uh, we lift up those that are traveling, millions and millions of people traveling this week, and we pray for uh, traveling safety in, in their lives. We pray for our witness, time of Thanksgiving, time of Christmas holiday, and yet it's more than that, Lord. It's a celebration of the church, and we pray that as we have an opportunity to witness, you might give us boldness and strength to do that, that there's purpose in this, that there's meaning in this. We're placed here on this planet for this purpose, Lord, so speak through us in boldness and power so that others might come to know you. We do thank you for your provision, for the harvest we benefit from. We, we get to gorge ourselves for our health, for our strength, for family and friends and fellowship that we celebrate this week too. We give you thanks for your great abundance and for your mercy, particularly for your word. And Father, as we hear your word proclaimed today, use it to pierce our hearts with great truth, the timeless truths of Scripture that only come from you, and yet you've sent a messenger. Pray for Pastor Gray. We, we're grateful that he's back and he's feeling better. And we, we ask that you would speak through him. Give us that message that you've given him for your glory. Amen. I'd invite you, if you would, to turn to First Peter chapter 3. This morning we'll look at First Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 13 following through verse 17. It's good to be back with you this week. It seems like it's been a year since I've been here. I know it hasn't been that long, but a couple of weeks ago, I, uh, while you were worshiping, I got to spend um, the Lord's Day in the emergency room. That was a lot of fun. Um, I assure you I'd rather have been here worshiping with you. First time in my life I've been a patient in an emergency room and not the guy coming to visit somebody else. And so uh, I guess they say what goes around comes around. And uh, it came around a couple of weeks ago on a Sunday morning. But uh, thank you for praying for me. I'm feeling much better and um, uh, doing, doing much better. So I'm grateful, grateful for your prayers. Um, and I'm also grateful for nurses and doctors particularly who work on Sunday right now. So any of you out there in the medical field who work on Sunday and feel bad about that, I found myself particularly grateful for you two weeks ago. Um, if everyone had been in church on that Sunday, I would have been in trouble. Um, in fact, as I sat in the little room waiting for things to happen, I was looking out the doorway, and I saw go by the doorway uh, Mandy Ganey. I don't see Mandy this morning. It's probably where she is, one of our uh, nurses that's in our congregation. There's Will right there. Will, I saw Mandy go by. And then like a second later, I saw her reverse and come back and look in. Like, what are you doing here? Uh, just thankful for her kindness and the others in the hospital that day. This morning, we turn our attention to First Peter chapter 3. I'm going to read verse 13 through 17. Follow along with me if you have a Bible. 
Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. It's the word of the Lord. The year was somewhere around 111 A.D., the Roman emperor at the time was a man by the name of Trajan. Trajan had led some conquests on the battlefield, but he had another field he wanted to conquer, and that was the religious landscape of his empire. He had issued an edict in the empire, and the edict was that all those who are subject to Roman law were required to sacrifice to Roman gods. Of course, that put those who were Christians within his empire in a, in a very threatening predicament. They had a, a choice to make. Do I obey the Lord? Obey the Lord and face the persecution of the state? Or do I give in to the demands of the emperor? As you can imagine, many Christians did not give in to the demands of the emperor. They instead honored the Lord in their lives, regardless of what the emperor said, and that infuriated him. One day on a trip into the city of Antioch, he wanted to make an example, to set an example and make an example of a Christian. So he chose a man by the name of Ignatius. Ignatius was the leader of the church in Antioch. He was the third leader of the church in Antioch after Peter. Ignatius was arrested, and he was brought before Trajan. Trajan said to him when he was brought before him, Who are you, you you wicked wretch, who defies and ignores our commands, persuading others to do the same, even though you know that doing so will bring you to a most miserable death? Ignatius replied, No one ought to call Theophorus wicked, for there are no evil spirits in the servant of God. But if you're calling me an enemy of these spirits you worship, that I am wicked in respect to them, then I quite agree. For inasmuch as I have Christ, the King of heaven, in me, I will do everything within my power to turn men's hearts from their devices. Trajan scowls back at him. Who is this Theophorus? Trajan demanded of him. He says back to him, Theophorus simply means God-bearer, the person who has Christ living within his heart, that's his name. You claim God in your heart, but you don't see that we have the gods in our minds whose help we have enjoyed in defeating our enemies? Ignatius said, you're mistaken if you would call the demons of the nations gods. There's only one God, the maker of heaven and earth and the seas and all that's in them. He is the one, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, whose kingdom I desire to enjoy. Oh, you mean the one that was crucified under Pontius Pilate, Trajan says. No, I mean the one who was crucified for my sin. 
the one who was crucified for my sin and defeated him who was the inventor of it and who has condemned and emasculated all the deceit and malice of the devil under the feet of those who carry him in, his heart, in their hearts. Trajan, having enough of the conversation, realizing Ignatius was steadfast in his, in his defense and realizing he would never give in, he pronounced a sentence. We find this man incurable, overrun with the superstitions of Christians. Therefore, we command that Ignatius, who affirms that he carries within himself uh, him who was crucified, be bound by soldiers and carried to the great Rome where he will be devoured by wild beasts for the gratification of the people of Rome. At the Trajan's surprise, there was no fear in the eyes of Ignatius. Not even a little. Instead, he looked to heaven and he said, O Lord, I thank you that you have guaranteed to honor me with a perfect love towards you and have made me to be bound with chains as the Apostle Paul was. The soldiers started the long journey with Ignatius all the way to Rome and along the way Ignatius met believers that met him on the road to Rome knowing his fate and he encouraged those believers along the way. In spite of the harsh treatment along the way by the soldiers, he managed to write some things down on his way. One of the things he wrote was this. He wrote, Only now do I begin to be a disciple of Christ. I care nothing of visible or invisible things that the world is amazed by. I care only that I may but win Christ. Let fire and the cross, let the companies of wild beasts, let the breaking of bones and tearing of limbs, let the grinding of the whole body on all the malice of the devil come upon me. Be it so. Only may I win Christ Jesus. And he said to the people who were listening to him, Don't pray that I be delivered. Only pray for me that inward and outward strength be given to me, not only to speak and to write this, but also to perform and endure it so that I may not only be called a Christian, but may also be found one in truth. They arrived at Rome, and Ignatius was led into the arena, to the Roman arena. And as he stood in the middle of the arena, ready to meet his sentence, he looked up at the audience and he said these words, O you Romans, all of you who have come to witness with your own eyes this combat, I want you to know, that this punishment is not because of any misdeed or crime, but that I may come to God for whom I long and for whom to enjoy this is my insatiable desire. For I am the grain of God. I am ground by the teeth of the beasts that I may be found a pure bread for Christ. who is to me the bread of life. Upon speaking those words, two lions were released from their pits and they charged upon Ignatius and within a matter of minutes devoured his flesh and there was little left of him, not even his bones. I read that story this week and had a couple of sort of internal reactions to it. One reaction to it is awe and amazement. I don't know how you respond to it, but awe and amazement was one thing that, that, uh, that struck me. How is it that a man 
could be so firm in his faith, that that would be his response to that kind of persecution. That he would stand against his accuser with, his accuser with that kind of grace and that kind of confidence and that kind of eloquence. That he would show no fear, but that he would honor Christ. And he would be a witness to all those who witnessed the proceedings. And all of one who would look into the eyes of two lions and be joyful. And be joyful. In awe of one who understands that it's one thing to be called a Christian. It's another thing altogether to be found one in action. That was true of Ignatius. And it's been true of so many others throughout the history of the church who have faced severe persecution, even death. Pastor Frank prayed this morning for the persecuted church, even this moment in nations around the world. There are believers who face what Ignatius faced. Oh, maybe not lions. Maybe at the end of, of a sword, maybe hanging, maybe some other sort of death for their faith in Christ. If their life is not threatened, they're being persecuted and tortured, threatened, living in the constant run for their lives. The persecution of the church has been a reality all throughout the history of the church. From the time of Ignatius right up into our day. And there is no expectation that it will ever end. In fact, when we look into the Word of God, we find that the Scriptures paint a picture of persecution as being the the normal reality for believers. The fact that there would be seasons where there are believers where there is no persecution, where there is no reason to face those kinds of things is actually the exception and not the rule. Now, for us who live in 2016 America and who've lived here for most of our lives, we don't realize that because we've never really experienced that to any real degree, right? It's something that happens that happened to Ignatius back in 111. It's something that happens to somebody else in some faraway place. We falsely believe that our experience is the norm. We need to realize that our experience is not the norm. It's the exception. And there's no guarantee that it will continue. We've seen all throughout 1 Peter chapter 1 this theme, this theme of persecution that continually comes, this theme of trouble in the lives of believers. Back in verse uh, 6 of chapter 1, he wrote, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. He's talking about trouble and trials, persecution. In chapter 2, he says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers... You may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Again, people are speaking against them as evildoers. That's persecution. In chapter 2, verse 19, speaking to servants, he says, It's a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. In verse 21, he says, For to this you've been called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. In our text this morning, Peter hones in on a particular kind of trouble, on a particular kind of suffering, and that's a persecution for their faith. And he makes clear that Christians ought to expect this. Peter's readers understood that. They were living it when he wrote it, and they were living it when they read it. 
And so if persecution for faith is to be expected in the lives of believers, and the question that follows on that, if that's the expectation, then how are we supposed to respond when it comes? How can people like us who have really not known any persecution prepare ourselves to respond when that day comes and our faith is called into question and we have to choose how to respond? What are we going to do? How are we to respond when our faith comes under attack, when we're harassed for our faith, when we're facing loss and we're facing uh, persecution and threats to our lives for our faith? It's an important question to answer. How are we to respond? Because if we rely on our natural response, we're going to get it wrong. Our natural response to persecution is what? What does your flesh want to do when you're persecuted? When someone unjustly comes against you in any way, regardless of whether it's your faith? What's your natural fleshly reaction? Oh, you just want to punch them in the nose, right? Come on. You're not all that unlike me, right? Anger. Retaliation. Accusation. Resentment. Bitterness, depending on the intensity of the persecution, maybe even fear. Those are, those are how our flesh wants to respond when persecution comes our way. But it's not a godly response. And Peter is going to make clear to his, his readers and to us today what is the, the right way to respond when persecution comes. And I want to tell you, this may not seem critical to you right now because for the most part you live out your faith in freedom and nobody bothers you because of it. But I want to tell you, right now is the time you need to get this right. Right now is the time we need to figure out how to respond to it before it ever gets here. Because market, it's coming. It's coming. Perhaps faster than any of us would like. And so in our text, I just want to give you a few sort of principles that I think pop out that Peter writes for how we are to respond when we face persecution. How is it that believers, how is it that people who love the Lord Jesus Christ are to respond? And I think you'll see each of these principles illustrated already in the life of Ignatius. But let me give them to you, just four, and maybe we'll get all four this morning. The first is this. Cultivate a right attitude. The first thing in responding to persecution that has to be addressed is our attitude. Cultivating the right attitude. Going into persecution, or when it first comes upon us, we have to have in us already the right attitude toward it. Peter gives us that in verses 12 and 13. He says, Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for doing what is good? But even if you suffer, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. You'll be blessed. Now, the first thing Peter says in verse 12 there is a rhetorical question. He says, Who is there to harm you if you're zealous for doing what is good? Now, the theologians debate on exactly what he means there. It could be one of two things. He could be saying, in general, people don't persecute those who are zealous for good. He could be saying that. The idea that normally people who just live their lives and work hard at doing good and honoring others and living humble lives that benefit society, normally, if that's the way you live, you're not a target for persecution. That would be the normal expectation. That could be what Peter's saying. Others would say, no, what Peter is saying is that that you should expect, regardless of how you live, you should expect persecution. But at the end of the day... No one can ultimately harm you because at the end of the day, all they can do is hurt your body. Christ is the one who ultimately rewards. And so at the end of the day, they can never touch what really matters. Regardless of which one it, it is, and I, think it tends to, I tend to think it's the first option. Normally, Christ followers who go about their business, loving God, doing good in their community, are not typically targets for persecution. But that's not always true. 
That's not always true. And the people to whom Peter was writing knew that that wasn't always true because they were such people and they were facing that kind of persecution. But then he goes on to tell us something that really matters, something that's really radical, a sort of a radical attitude-altering truth when he simply says this. And let me just paraphrase it in a way that I hope you can remember it. He says basically this, suffering for our faith is a blessing, not a curse. Suffering for our faith is a blessing, not a curse. You caught that, right, when he said it. He said what? I got the right chapter, it would help. There we go. Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, even if you are living a good, productive, humble life in your community and you should suffer for it, you'll be blessed. You'll be blessed. Suffering for our faith is a blessing. It's not a curse. Well, what does he mean by that, you'll be blessed? He doesn't so much mean by blessed that you'll be happy, right? He doesn't mean happy. No one's happy when persecution comes. No one says, woohoo, let's throw a party. They're coming after me today. Unless there's something wrong upstairs, that's not the kind of happiness that you face persecution with. And that's not what Peter's talking about when he says you'll be blessed or that suffering for our faith is a blessing. What he means by that is not happy. What he means by that is highly privileged. Highly privileged. Suffering for our faith is a blessing in the sense that we are highly privileged to get to suffer for Christ. It's not a curse. Or as one author said, and I love the way he said it, it's a privilege to take blows for Christ. That's a great summary of what Peter is saying. He's saying we need to understand that when persecution comes our way, it's not an enemy. It is, in fact, a blessing. It is a blessing because we have the honor of taking some blows for Christ. That image just pops in my mind. The image that pops into my mind is somebody coming after Christ and me getting in the way and getting to take some shots for Him. That would be a blessing. That would be a blessing, not a curse. And you know, that's truly what's happening when we're persecuted for our faith. When the world comes at us because of our faith, it's really not us that they hate. It's Christ that they hate. We just happen to be the ones that bear Christ before them. And so we take the blows, but we take them on His account. Because he's the one they hate. Jesus said so much in John 15, verse 20 and following. Remember the word that I said to you? A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name. Because they do not know him who sent me. You're going to go out, and all this persecution is going to happen. It's going to happen to you just like it happened to me. But don't take it personal because it's really not about you. They're doing it to you because it's on my account. They're doing it because it's me they're after. And you just happen to be the one bearing me before them. And so you get to take the blows. Now, persecution isn't fun, but it's a blessing to be able to take blows for Christ. Think about for a moment what Christ has done for you. Think about what he's done for you. A perfect son of God. He left the glory and splendor of heaven. And he came to a filthy, rotten planet filled with sin. He lived a perfect life among humanity. Did nothing but good. Spoke no words other than words that were uplifting and building up and for the good of those to whom he spoke. He did no evil toward any man. And yet he was harassed. He was persecuted. 
He was largely rejected. And he ends his life by taking on your sin and my sin. In fact, becoming our sin, bearing our sin in his flesh. Arrested, tortured, nailed to a cross. Shedding his very blood. Suffering and dying. Not because of anything that he did. But because of everything that we've done. He took blow after blow after blow after blow for us. For us. It is a great privilege to be able to take a couple blows for Him. In light of all the blows that He's taken on our account, what's the big deal? It's a great privilege, isn't it, to have the honor of taking a couple on His account. There's nothing shameful about that. That's not a curse. That's not a curse. That's a blessing. It's a blessing to take blows for Christ. And you know, we could take everything that the world has to throw at us, and we could take every blow the world has to throw at us, and it wouldn't even measure up to a little smidgen of what he's taken on our account, would it? It wouldn't. There's another reason. By suffering for our faith is a blessing and not a curse, because God ultimately will reward those who suffer for him. Those who suffer for Christ will get an eternal reward. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Rejoice. Be glad. For your reward in heaven is great. It's great. So they persecuted the prophets who were before you. God has an eternal storehouse set aside for those who are persecuted on his account. The world might reject us, but God rewards. And that's not a curse. That's a blessing. There's another reason why suffering for our faith is a blessing and not a curse. Because God is in the midst of our pain with us. And He uses that persecution, that very persecution, that very evil that the world unleashes on us on account of our faith. God is using, He's sovereign over that. And He's using all of that ultimately for our good. You get that? Even when we're persecuted for our faith, even when we're taking blows for Christ, He is sovereign over that, and He uses that for our good. James 1, verses 2 and following, Count it all joy, James writes, when you meet various trials, you know, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete or mature, lacking in nothing. Even in the midst of persecution, even when we're taking blows for Christ, God is sovereign over that. And what He's doing in the midst of that is shaping us and molding us and bringing us to maturity in our faith. He's molding in us character traits that cannot be molded under any other sort of circumstance. And in that regard, it is a blessing. It is not a curse. So James says our attitude ought to be, count it all joy. It's another way of saying what Peter says. When you take blows for Jesus, it's a blessing. It's not a curse. That's not our natural attitude, as we mentioned a moment ago. Our natural attitude when someone persecutes us us is this. Our attitude when persecution comes normally is that persecution is an enemy. It's an enemy to be resisted. It's an enemy to be fought against. It's an enemy to be avoided at all costs. Or when it comes, we we, we feel abandoned by God. And we look up to God and we say, God, where are you? Why have you left me in the midst of all this? 
Or maybe we even accuse God of injustice. God, why is this happening to me? Look at all the things I do to you, do for you. I, I go to church. I don't smoke and I don't drink and I don't date women who do. I look at all the to-dos that I do and all the don'ts that I don't. I deserve better than this. It's accusing God of injustice. I bet if you look into the recesses of your heart, you can think of a moment in your life when you had that attitude. When something came your way that you didn't want. That's our natural attitude. That's, what our, that's how our flesh normally responds to persecution. And what Peter is saying here is if we're going to stand when the persecution comes, if we're going to honor Christ in the midst of persecution, it begins with us cultivating the right attitude. It begins with us realizing that persecution is not our enemy, that persecution is not an enemy to be resisted or to be fought against or to be resisted or to be avoided. That in fact, persecution is a blessing and not a curse. It's the right attitude. If we're going to begin to stand when the persecution comes, we've got to realize that when it comes, it comes as a blessing. We have the great privilege to take blows for Christ. And even in the midst of taking blows for Christ, God is using that, those blows to mold us and shape us into Christ's image. And beyond all of that, when it's all said and done and we stand before the Lord, there's an eternal reward for standing firm and honoring Christ in the midst of it. It's a blessing to take blows for Christ, not a curse. That's the right attitude. That was the attitude you saw in Ignatius, right? In the story of Ignatius. He didn't, he didn't fight against it. He spoke the truth. But he, he seemed honored, in fact, to go to the arena. Because in his eyes, it was the least he could do for his Lord. So the first principle we see here is this. Cultivate the right attitude that that persecution is a blessing. It's not a curse. The second thing here is this in verse 14. We have to refuse to let fear dominate. Verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Have no fear of them. Don't be afraid. That's principle number two. Don't be afraid of persecution. Refuse to allow fear to dominate. You know, one of the things that was most most shameful that I observed in the most recent uh, presidential election. By the way, are you glad that's over? Anybody else glad that's over with? Yeah, yeah. I'm not alone in that, right? What a crazy, uh, sad bizarre sort of a season in the life of our nation has that whole fiasco been. But without getting into too much of a sidetrack, one of the, one of the things that, that struck me throughout that was most shameful, at least for Christians, was the dominant theme of fear. Fear that you saw coming out of the mouths and the attitudes of Christians. And it's really ironic how before the election it was one group of Christians and after the election it was a different group of Christians. But at the end of the day it was the same problem. This, this whole idea of being overcome with fear and speaking out of fear and reacting out of, spe- out of fear. I mean, before the election it was all of the, the more conservative sort of evangelical Christians who were speaking out of fear. Oh my goodness, if Hillary Clinton gets elected, the world is going to explode and come to an end. I mean, that's it. They'll have, there'll be no more iced tea in the South. There'll be, I mean, it's going to be awful. I mean, 
will never win another court case, and is on and on and on. Oh, it's just because the world is going to come to a con- It's going to end. I mean, life as we know it will be over, and it just can't happen. Just terrified. Terrified. Sheer terror. Then after the election, we've got a different group of people who identify themselves with Christ, more on the sort of left side of politics, who are not happy with the outcome, who now are responding with this whole attitude of fear. Oh, my goodness, Donald Trump's been elected. The world's going to come to a conclusion. I mean, he's evil. He's awful. The world's going to explode. We'll never be able to do our things again. I mean, tomorrow the sun's just not going to come out. It's awful. We're terrified. And it doesn't matter whether you're on the left or the right. If you're a Christian, fear is never the right response. Fear is never the right response. There is no way that a person can claim that Christ is Lord of your life when fear is what dominates your thoughts and your attitude and your actions. Christ is not Lord of your life if fear is running the show. It can't be. Only one can sit on the throne at a time. And here, Peter addresses this issue of fear. He deals with this issue of fear, particularly when it comes to persecution. And he says, have no fear of them. Don't be troubled. Don't even be troubled by them. So what is this he's talking about? What's fear? John Ortberg says fear is this. That's an internal warning cry that danger is nearby and we had better do something about it. It's designed to be unpleasant enough to motivate us to take action and remove ourselves from whatever is threatening It readies our bodies to flee or hide or fight. Rush Dozier says this, speaking of the psychological component of fear, he says, says, our minds can detect danger within one-tenth of a second of initial perception well before conscious decision ever kicks in. You see, we've got this built-in mechanism within us psychologically and physically that responds to stimuli that ought to be frightening to us. And God's given us that. It's sort of an internal reaction system that is given to us sort of for our protection, right? I mean, fear by itself isn't a bad thing altogether. Fear is a natural reaction that God has made us with that actually helps us. It's a human, natural, human response to dangerous situations. It's a good thing. It's the thing that keeps a child from touching a hot stove, right? It's afraid it's going to burn him. It's the thing that keeps you and me from driving recklessly, most of us. I've seen some of you on the roads. But it's the thing that keeps us from violating the law, right? That's a healthy sort of a fear. We don't want to be arrested. We don't want to be imprisoned, so we obey the law. Fear is the kind of thing that keeps husbands from leaving the toilet seats up. You understand what I'm talking about. Fear itself is not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. It's not particularly spiritual to stand there, you know, just twiddling your thumbs when a lion is running at you. No, you run because you're afraid, and rightfully so. There's a certain sort of fear that, that's nothing wrong with that. It, it gets, it, it's natural that, that we should pay attention to and we should respond to. But fear becomes a bad thing when it gets attached to things that don't really threaten us and becomes paralyzing instead of motivating You see, our fears can get attached to things that don't really threaten us. And instead of motivating us to do what is good and what is right, it paralyzes us or causes us to do what is evil and wrong. And here, that's exactly what Peter is arguing. He's saying to his believers, listen, the people who come at you and persecute you don't really threaten you. 
They aren't really a threat, and you shouldn't be afraid of them. They don't really threaten us because they exist under the sovereignty of God. Their persecution is aimed at Christ, not us. And their persecution, at the end of the day, is really a a blessing. There's no threat. There's no reason to be afraid. There's no reason to be afraid. But sometimes we get afraid of things that don't really threaten us. You know, here, when persecution comes our way and our response is fear, we're saying something about God when we respond that way. Let me tell you three things that we could be saying all of these things or one or the other of them. When we respond to persecution with fear, we're possibly saying God's promises are not true. When I live in fear, controlled by fear, I'm saying God's promises are not true. Because God has told us in Romans 8:28, all things, in all things, God works for the good for those who love Him and have been called according to His purpose. When I respond in fear, I'm saying God's promise isn't true. That that's not true in my case. God's telling a lie. Another thing we're saying about God, we're saying, God doesn't really love me. He's not really concerned about me. He's just playing games with me. When I respond with fear, that's part of what I'm saying. I'm saying, God doesn't really love me. He's not, he's not really in my corner. He really doesn't have my best in mind. He's just kind of jerking me around. Romans 8, 38 and following, I'm convinced, Paul said, that neither death nor life nor angels, nor demons, nor anything present, nor the future, nor any powers, or any height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus the Lord. You see, God's Word has told us there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. That God's love is eternal, and it endures every circumstance, and in every moment He has our best at heart and in mind. When we respond in fear, we're saying, God doesn't really love me. Or we're saying... God isn't powerful enough to do something about this situation. I get it, God's powerful, but this one is even beyond His reach. So I'm going to be afraid. John Orberg said this, Fear has created more practicing heretics than bad theology ever has. For it makes us live as though we serve a limited, finite, partially present, semi-competent God. I'll read that to you again. Fear has created more practicing heretics than bad theology ever has, for it makes us live as though we serve a limited, finite, partially present, semi-competent God. And that's exactly what Peter is saying when he says, don't be afraid. You have no reason to fear when persecution comes your way. To respond in fear is to reject everything that God has said is true. It's to reject that God is powerful enough to deal with this. It's to reject that God loves you and has brought this and His love will sustain you in the midst of it. It's to reject that God's promises are true. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Our lives simply can't be ruled by Christ and fear at the same time. And when fear is dominating our thoughts and when fear is directing our emotions and when fear is dictating our actions, Christ is not ruling our lives. So we stand without fear. Well, Peter, if we're not to be afraid, then how are we to respond? What, do we, what, what replaces fear? He tells us in our third principle. Be Christ-focused. He says, don't be afraid of them. Don't even be troubled by them. Then verse 15, he says this. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord 
as holy. Don't be afraid. Instead of being afraid, do this. Honor Christ the Lord as holy. He puts those two things in opposition to one another. He says, don't do this. Instead, do this. Honor Christ the Lord as holy. Summarized it by simply saying, be Christ-focused. Now, can you go back to that slide, previous slide, JP? The NASB translates this, I think, a little bit better. It says, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Sanctify simply means to set apart. So in other words, instead of being afraid, instead of focusing on your fear, instead of fighting against your persecution, instead of fighting against your persecutors, instead of being angry, instead of being bitter, and all those things that flow out of fear, instead of doing that, set apart Christ in your heart. Look to Christ. Look to, look to Christ. Set Him apart in your heart. Set Him apart in your heart as Lord. Let Him rule your heart instead of fear. Simply put, replace the fear of persecution with the rule of Christ. Or, another way, replace the fear of persecution with the fear of Christ. Now, Peter is quoting here, you may not know, from Isaiah chapter 8. It's almost a direct quotation to something Isaiah had written in the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 8, if you have your Bible, you may want to flip over to that, verses 11 through 13. Many generations earlier... Israel, the people of God are coming under attack. The people of the southern kingdom are being attacked by uh, an alliance of nations aligned with the northern kingdom. And the armies are coming against them. And there's this real temptation to be terrified and afraid. Isaiah verse 11 of chapter 8 said, For the Lord spoke to me, and his strong hand was upon me. And he warned me not to walk in the way of these people, saying... Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, Him you shall honor as holy. Let Him be your fear, and let Him be your dread. It's the same thing. He expands, isn't it? Peter's using the same exact argument. Don't fear them. Fear the Lord. Now, Peter makes a one little change when he quotes this passage from Isaiah. Did you catch it? In Isaiah, he writes, But the Lord of hosts, that's another name for Yahweh, God. Let him be your fear. You shall honor him as holy. When Peter says it, he says what? Honor Christ the Lord as holy. Peter is saying something that would have been really clearly understood by those to whom he was speaking is a little fuzzier to us being down the road of history. What he is doing is equating Christ in the New Testament with the Lord of hosts in the Old Testament. It's a way of saying that they're one and the same. Christ is the Lord of hosts from the Old Testament. He is that very same God in flesh. It's a way of exalting Christ's deity. It's another way of making the same argument that they were making in the Old Testament. Honor God. Fear Him. Don't fear the people. In the New Testament, honor Christ who is God in the flesh. Don't fear the persecution. Don't fear the people. Fear Him. Just as Old Testament believers were to fear God rather than their enemies, you're to fear Christ. You don't hear a whole lot about the fear of God anymore, do you? You don't hear people talk too much about the fear of God. You hear people talk about God being loving and kind and merciful and gracious, and He is all of those things for sure, things that we speak about often and ought to. But there's a clear theme in, throughout the Bible of an appropriate response to God as a holy fear. 
a holy respect and reverence. Not a fear as though I'm afraid he's going to do evil against me, but a fear that says he is so far above me and I am so far below him, I have no right to even stand in his presence. He is, he is beyond anything that I could ever imagine. There are some really good reasons why we ought to fear God. Let me just give you a few as we bring this to a conclusion. I'll give you a few reasons why you ought to fear God. You should fear God because He is awesome. He is awesome. People are not awesome, but God is awesome. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 7, 21. You shall not be terrified of them, talking of the people who are coming against them. For the Lord your God, the great and awesome God, is among you. What is the writer, what is the writer in Deuteronomy saying? Hey, don't fear those people. They're nothing. You've got in the midst of you God, and He is what? He is awesome. They are not awesome. He is awesome. Now, we use the word awesome in pithy sort of ways in our language today, right? How was dinner last night? Oh, it was awesome. It was awesome. I had some pizza the other night. I had some awesome pizza. That's taking a term that's applied to God here in a big way and making it almost insignificant. When you, when you think of God, don't think pizza awesome or ice cream awesome or dinner was awesome, awesome. Think earthquake awesome. Has anybody ever been somewhere where the earthquake happened? Raise your hand if you've been somewhere where the earthquake happened. Okay, so when an earthquake happened and you were there, what, what was your reaction? Okay. I mean, you, you think that literally the earth is shaking around you. When an earthquake happens, that's awesome. That is a power that is beyond anything that we know is literally shaking the entire earth. And you feel it and you sense the awesomeness of that moment. It is awesome. When you think of the Lord as being awesome, don't think pizza awesome. Think earthquake awesome. Think he's the God who created the heavens and the earth. He's the God who suspended the stars in the sky. He's the God who created the earth and carved out the the oceans and the rivers and he built up the mountains. He's the God who could squash everything in the universe with a simple word from his mouth. He's awesome and he's great. Psalm 97, verse 2. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes out before him and burns up his adversaries round about. His lightnings lit up the world. The earth saw and trembled. The mountains melted like wax in the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. That's awesome. That's awesome. If the mountains melt like wax in His presence, that's awesome. If we could just catch a glimpse of what we're trying to capture in this word awesome, of what God is like, it would would drop us to our knees. We're to fear God because He is awesome. Men who bring persecution are not. God is awesome. He's the creator of all men. He's the creator of all things. Psalm 103, know that the Lord himself is God. It's he who's made us, not we ourselves. We're his people, the sheep of his pasture. And he sustains all things. He made everything. He sustains everything. He's sovereign over all men. He is the judge of all men. And he is the only redeemer of any man. And he is infinitely superior to anything that we know or could possibly ever imagine or think of. He is an awesome God who is worthy of fear. That's why Isaiah says, to whom then will you liken God? 
Or what likeness will you compare with him? In other words, I say, who can compare? Who can compare? What could you compare to God? The answer is, there's nothing. There's nothing that compares to him. Jeremiah writes, there is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and great is your name and might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? Indeed, it is your due for among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. Jeremiah gets it, right? He gets it. Fearing God is completely reasonable in light of who he is. Compared to him, no man, no group of men is even a small threat. If the mountains melt in his presence, he can melt anybody who brings persecution our way in a moment. So our attitude has to be that persecution is a blessing, not a curse. We have to refuse to allow fear to dominate our thoughts and our attitudes and our actions. Instead of allowing, instead of allowing fear to dominate us, we, we set apart Christ as Lord. We, we replace that natural fear of men with a fear of one to whom fear is due. And we realize, like the Israelites in the Old Testament, that God, the great and awesome one, is among us. And He's with us. Who should we fear? Who should we fear apart from Him? You caught that in the story of Ignatius, didn't you? He wasn't afraid of Trajan. He wasn't afraid of the soldiers. He wasn't afraid of the lions. The only fear before that man's eyes was the fear of the Lord. And because of that, he was able to stand when the persecution came. He was able to stand. Well, that's just the first part of the passage. There's a couple of other things that he tells us, but we'll look at those next week. But that's enough for us to stop and and think for a moment, isn't it? It's enough for us to stop and think for a moment. How How is it that we react when persecution comes in the small ways that it comes to us now? How is it that we react? Do we react with fear? Do we react with anger? Do we react with bitterness or or thoughts of retaliation or revenge? Do we look at, at persecution as a curse that's to be avoided, that we should run from, that we don't want any part of? Or do we look at it and say, praise God, praise God, I have an opportunity to take a few blows for Christ. I want to challenge you this morning. I suspect that probably few, if any of us in the room at this very moment are facing persecution for our faith. Maybe you are. Maybe you're in a workplace where, where it's not acceptable that you're a Christian. Maybe you're, in a, maybe, maybe you're in a family where it isn't politically correct to love Christ and to let that rule your heart. Maybe, maybe you're around a group of friends who don't like your, the values that you live out because of your faith. And so maybe in some ways you are facing some sort of persecution in small ways. But I suspect most of us are not facing anything big at the moment. And so it becomes a little challenging, I guess, to apply a text like this, doesn't it? When it's not real and in our face. And I want to suggest to you this morning that when it's not real and in our face, is exactly the moment to apply it. It's exactly the point to get it settled in our hearts. Because we never know when that day is going to come. Persecution normally doesn't announce itself in advance. It normally doesn't send an invitation ahead. It just happens. And either we're ready or we're not. 
we can begin to get ready this morning by taking seriously what Peter says here. By settling in our hearts that persecution is not an enemy to our soul. It's a friend. It's a blessing. It's a blessing because it gives us the privilege of taking some blows for Jesus. Do you, do you receive that this morning? Do you believe that in your heart? Can you embrace that as a true attitude of your life toward whatever persecution might come your way? Can you realize this morning, at least in small ways, how fear dominates your life? Can you realize even in small ways how fear dominates, fear of men dominates your thoughts and your actions and your attitudes and the way you respond, causing you to respond sinfully to things that are happening around you? That's a sin to confess this morning. Lord, Lord, forgive me for fearing men more than I fear you. Forgive me for being afraid of those who really are no threat. Forgive me for having a higher view of people than I have of you. Maybe a dangerous prayer you could pray in conclusion this morning would be, God, give me a glimpse of your awesome might. Help me to see you for who you really are. Help me to see you for all of your awesomeness. Expand my view of who you are. That in seeing who you are, I have no reason to fear anyone else because I know you're on my side and you're with me and you love me and you're all-powerful and you're in control of every circumstance. Help me, Lord, to keep Christ in view all the time. Help me, Lord, to, to look to Christ in every circumstance in my life. Help me to honor Him and look to Him and trust in Him and believe in Him and place my faith in Him no matter what comes at me. So that whatever comes at me, at the end of the day, I might be found standing on your truth and honoring you for the world that's looking at my life to see. Father, we're grateful for your word this morning. I'm not sure, Lord, exactly how it is that you would intend to apply these things to us this morning. But you know these things. You know what's every human being in this room is facing at the moment. You know it far more intimately than I could ever know it. You know their hearts. You know their thoughts. You know their attitudes. You know everything about them. And so I pray in these quiet moments, Lord, you would apply this text to them personally in real and specific ways. Convince us, Lord, that it's a joy and a blessing to, to take blows for you. In, spite, in, in light of all the blows you've taken for us. Help us to see the foolishness of allowing fear to dominate our thoughts and actions and attitudes. Lord Jesus, help us to look to you. Eyes on you. Not on people. Not on circumstances. Not on what the future may hold. But on Christ. Our Redeemer. Our Savior. Our King. Lord, we pray that you prepare us in these quiet moments for persecution. Shape our thoughts, shape our attitudes, shape, Lord, our resilience. That when that day comes for us, we might be able to be found standing like Ignatius, like Peter, like so many others throughout the history of the church as a testimony of your greatness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.